I've got a new book by Rumi. Mother has given me five new books on Rumi in the last year. I decided it was time to get the hint and to see if uh, we could add this to our Hafiz repertoire. Little by little, wean yourself. This is the gist of what I have to say. From an embryo whose nourishment comes in the blood, move to an infant drinking milk, to a child on solid food, to a searcher after wisdom, to a hunter of more invisible game. Think how it is to have a conversation with an embryo. You might say the world outside is vast and intricate. There are wheat fields and mountain passes and orchards in bloom. At night there are millions of galaxies and in sunlight the beauty of friends dancing at a wedding. You ask the embryo why he or she stays cooped up in the dark with eyes closed. Listen to the answer. There is no other world. I only know what I have experienced. You must be hallucinating. <laughs> Before I start, I want to go through our, <laughs> our three basic most important things, lest we forget the most important things and move on to drier, drier ground. We must always remember as spiritual seekers, as friends of the divine, that our first and highest priority, of course, is love in this universe. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love each other as we love ourselves. Love, yes, that's it. <laughs> love each other as we love ourselves, according to the words of Jesus. That we must not forget that, and that that kind of love has to trickle down and kind of uh, seep into a, an, an, an authenticity, an earnestness, and a sincerity that we have in our, in our dealings with the people around us, in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk, and the things that we say, so that there's an alignment, you know, in that, that there's a, there's a stability to it, a depth to it, that our lives are centered on truth, that we're always questioning and always opening our mind, to new ideas and to things that, that will take us higher in our consciousness and in the way that we approach the world. So to be, to be highly committed to those three things, that love, you know, it's, it's not a difficult thing. It's, it's a confusing thing, really, because I, one of the things that, that occurs to me quite regularly, especially, especially as a monk, I guess, is I've been reading these things for, for 50, 50 years now, soon to be 52 years, not all Vedanta, but certainly religious stuff all my life. And, uh, and yet here I am. <laughs> and I wonder how many times and how many different ways do I have to hear this lesson before it's going to click in my head? You know, how many times am I going to have to, to, to expose myself to these things, to hear these lectures, and to <laughs> sit and do my practice day after day after day and, uh, until something occurs to me, until I decide that something in there is real, you know. It's, it's a great struggle, and it's one that I'm hoping to share and, uh, and get us all churning inside to, to kind of push farther and to become that place that hosts the next realized soul. <laughs> That's my dream. That's my prayer every morning at the end of the worship, is that, that God will somehow enlighten one of us, some of us here, anybody, you know, that someone 
uh, we'll see and that we can sit around that fire and enjoy that warmth uh, like they, like those disciples got to do in in, uh, in Dakshineshwar with, with uh, Ramakrishna. I like to sit and think in those terms, you know, to kind of try and, and shed off all of the things that I think I know or think, think that I have got together to kind of try and find that place of ignorance, to try and find those things that I'm attaching to and what's holding my grip so tightly on things. And um, yesterday I, w I was alluding to, uh, or in one of my talks this week, I was alluding to the fact that and I actually, have to, I've done it before in a lecture here, but now today I've got numbers. You know, I talked about how we're sitting on a planet that's spinning around at X number of miles, so I've got the numbers here. The surface of the Earth at the equator moves at a speed of 460 meters per second, or roughly 1,000 miles per hour. Okay, so that's our first thing right now. We're spinning around at 1,000 miles an hour in a circle. Now add to that this circle that's spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, which is fast enough to cause some concern. The speed of the orbit is 108,000 kilometers per hour. So we're moving, spinning at 1,000 miles an hour, moving at 108,000 kilometers per hour around the sun. And then the sun is moving toward Lamba Hercules at 20 kilometers per second. Uh, or 72, well, we'll do it in miles, 45,000 miles per hour. So 1,000 miles an hour, 108,000 kilometers an hour, and then going somewhere at 45,000 miles per hour, the sun appears to be cruising along at 200 kilometers per second, and it takes 240 million years to complete the grand circuit around the galaxy. As of June 19th, 2013, there were 10,003 near-Earth asteroids that are known to number in over one kilometer in diameter, and there, there are about 861, uh, 861 are over a kilometer in, in diameter, with, with 1,409 of them classified as potentially hazardous asteroids that could, could pose a threat of impacting the Earth. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> I can't even, I can't, I've read that several times this week. I can't even make that bother me. And uh, that, that, that is a real world example of what our problem is. <laughs> because this is a fact. All of those things are hardcore facts. You can go out there with a speedometer. I don't know how you would ever do it, but uh, somebody's done it. And you can come up with these figures. Now I know that if we, could, if we could comprehend the situation that we would be in a panic. And I know that because I was driving one of our devotees to the airport this week and elicited at least three, albeit low intensity, but they were definitely screams. Uh, of, <laughs> of fear in the car, and we were maybe pushing 75 miles an hour. So if that person had any notion of what was going on here, what the real situation was, that my 75 miles is completely not measurable when you think, in fact, of how fast and, and in what crazy tra trajectories we actually were moving. 
So I think, I think about this and I thought, well, what is the problem with this? The problem is ignorance, right? We take a great deal of comfort in ignorance. We don't see those 1,400 asteroids up there, so we don't worry about them. We don't feel any of this motion, which is really an odd thing. Because we we're talking about huge speeds here, wild spinning. And here we are, just, you know, able to fall asleep in our chair comfortably on Sunday morning. Not, not concerned at all, because we take a great deal of comfort in our ignorance. We've decided to keep it that way. You know, we, we don't need one more thing in our life to deal with, especially one more thing that we can't control, that we can't uh, do anything about. So you can see the parallels to what's going on in our real life, because we sit and we hear amazing pieces of philosophy, we call it, from these enlightened souls, these seers who have gone to the edge and seen something, seen something amazing. And they come back and they say, well, I can't really tell you what it is at the highest level because just for whatever reason, the tongue doesn't work. It just can't. So I'll break it down one level. Everything is one. There's only one and there's nothing else. And the nature of that one thing is, is love, infinite love, immortal, ever pure, ever free, ever blissful. That's the nature of this thing. And we sit in the same position that we do when we hear about the spinning of the worlds. That's cool. <laughs> Nifty. <laughs> Far out. But nothing moves. Nothing shifts. You know, we don't grab our seat in anticipation and wonder. Because we depend on our ignorance to define our lives. Because we depend on the small picture. I can't see those asteroids. I can't see God. Or don't recognize him, you know. And maybe, even don't, maybe you don't even recognize the asteroids. Maybe you see them at night. Maybe they're one of those twinkling lights. I don't know. Up there, maybe you can see them. But just this notion that, that we have returned to the familiar so often that we've come to this drunken stupor, as it were. Uh, and that's really how it looks to those enlightened souls. That's, that's, how, that's how they talk about us when they talk about, you know, you're, you're asleep, you're intoxicated, you're drunk. You know, you've, you're, you've, you've got your eyes closed. Open your eyes. Takor says it's easy to wake somebody up, but it's impossible to wake somebody up who's pretending to be sleeping, you know. And he says that that's our state. We're holding ourselves in the state. We've got to go deeper. We've got to find our way out. Now, there was a verse, and this verse is actually from the Bible, that uh, I wasn't going to use this morning, and I tried all week to get it out of my head, and it wouldn't go out of my head, so I'm surrendering mom putting it in here. It doesn't fit at all with the rest of the lecture, but this is where we're going. We've got to take a look at ourselves to find out why is it that we get this seed of information and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't seem to take root in us. It doesn't seem to, to break the soil up. And there's a parable, a story that, that Jesus was telling his disciples when he was teaching it says that that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by a lake. And such a large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. He was scattering the seed, and some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up and the plants were scorched, they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. 
Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So Jesus goes on to explain this, this parable later on, a couple of verses later. It's fairly easy to understand, but it's something to consider. What type of soil have we prepared for this morning? What kind of, what kind of soil do you consider yourself this morning, you know, as these things are being said, as, we, as we're going to un, unfold these truths, that some things that Mother has said, some things that Thakur has said, some things Jesus and Nishargadatta has said. What is it falling on? We've got four types of soil, four types of hearts possible, four choices for us this morning. The first one is just the, the path. You know, you've, you've become so jaded by the world just walking over you for your lifetime that there's just no feeling there. There's no, just, there's just no place for that information to go. It just kind of hits there, and it sits there until either it just falls off or, or the birds come and eat it, he says. You know, other things come and take the thought away from you, take the information away from you. So there's that notion where you've just, you've just, you've heard it so many times. You know, when I was, uh, when I was a, 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 a going to a Christian church, we used to compare converts to lifers, you know, and I find it's actually true in, in, in uh, Hinduism as well. It's probably true in all environments, actually, that people who grew up in a tradition, it's very hard to move or to inspire those people, you know, because they've heard these things again and again, and it's not new, and it's not that interesting. They've already created their bucket for it in the mind, and everything goes in there, and they leave it at that, you know. And then you've got the, 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 uh, the convert, you know, the person that comes in, and it's just like, really? Really? You know, just constantly, every little bit he learns. We've got a, a couple of wonderful devotees here like that, who are like that right now. Just can't get enough or just constantly going around praising everything about you as a teacher and everything about, you know, the ideal and can't buy enough books from the bookshop and you wonder how are they reading these things at this pace, you know, <laughs> just have that great fire. It's a wonderful thing to see and we have to consider where, where are we? What have we got inside? What have we got? What do we do with these things? Have we heard them and we just assume we've heard them? We put them in the same old box assuming we've gotten it and not rethink them, not rearrange other thoughts accordingly in our mind, what are you doing with them? You know, because that's the problem when you don't reconsider these things. Each time that you read the scripture, I've said this before, because Nishargadatta says it's very important. He says, when you read the scripture, know that each time you read it is the first time. That nothing in the world was the same the last time that you read that scripture. Nothing in your mind was the same the last time you read that scripture. Everything is different. So sit and be a student again. Read that scripture for the first time. And if something doesn't pop out to you, read it again. Look closer. Think more deeply about it. It's amazing what you can get. Like I'm, I, Every week we do this Thursday morning class, and I'm as startled by it as, as anybody who attends it. It's like we, we're just going through these quotes of Holy Mother, these little you know, one and two line quotes of Holy Mother. And we can take two of those and talk for an hour and a half on them. There's so much information there when you sit and read it for the first time. When you sit and, and assume that nothing is accidental in the way that she arranged the words, that nothing is accidental in the way that she formed the sentence, that everything has meaning. And so you go back and you just reconsider, why did she say this before she said that? You know, why did she say this, you know, in this place and use these words for that? And you meditate on it. 
you let it trickle down into the subconscious, I guess, for lack, I don't know what's down there. <laughs> you let it trickle down so that it forms an alignment, it forms an integrity, it begins to affect the way you think and the way you are. So are you that hard-hearted person who's just heard it so many times, there's no place else for it, no more reconsidering, and it just sits there until it gets taken away by some other distraction? He says, the second one, he says, falls on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. You know, this is, this is the habit of the sentimentality in spiritual life. We come, we hear a cool truth, we hear a good lecture, we get really fired up about it. Boom, boom, boom. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then Wednesday's here and absolutely nothing's changed. You're back down to zero again. <laughs> You're just plodding along, you know, waiting for the next, the next inspiration. What causes that? What causes that is devotion without renunciation. That's what causes that. Devotion without renunciation is just really sentimentality. It makes us very excitable. It makes us very engageable, but it doesn't last. It has no depth. It has no root to it. And so if that, if that, if that, you know, is, is, is what's causing it. You have to go to your garden, go inside and pull out those rocks that are causing shallow roots. Pull out those attachments. Start with your renunciation. Start cultivating your renunciation. Living according to these beautiful truths that we hear. Let them, let them affect the way that you think. Don't become afraid and clutch tighter. You know, that's a lot of times the reaction. And we think of ourselves, you know, it's, it's easy to get disappointed with ourselves. It, that's the easy route. The easy route is feeling guilty. The easy route is feeling down, you know, like, oh, poor me, I'm so bad, I'm so awful. And actually there's a certain hubris, there's a certain pride in that, an arrogance in that, uh, <laughs> because we have a God of infinite love, of infinite patience and infinite mercy who's telling us it's not like that. But we do that, why? Because it makes us feel like we're paying for being bad and we can sort of keep being bad. <laughs> I betray my own mind when I say things like that. I'm just, I'm actually not hoping it's true for you, but in a sense I'm hoping it's true, just so it's not my confession hour up here. But <laughs> this notion that, that when you think of something that needs to be done, you know, like I'll do the, my simple one that I talk about, getting up in the mornings, you know, I... <laughs> Always a challenge. And when I, when I came here, um, if, if Swami A was present, then I could sleep until 5.30, and he, would, he had to get up and come and open the shrine and unlock the doors and turn on the lights and everything. And that was good so that I could get an extra 45 minutes of sleep. But then when he would leave town, I would have to get up at you know 4.45 and come down and open the shrine and everything up. And I found myself, uh, I, I shan't say re resenting, but I'll say resenting him. <laughs> Every time he went away, I was like, oh, here we go, here we go. You know, and I thought, gosh, you know, this is always going to be this way, and it's just going to keep getting worse. And so I decided, okay, you know what we're going to do? I don't even want to say the words, but you know what you're going to do, see? You're going to get up at 445 every day. And that way it doesn't matter whether the Swami's here or not. 
And so I started doing that, you know, after it had become almost intolerable. I didn't want to talk to him anymore. <laughs> when he came back, I go, yeah. <laughs> so I did it and, and made it go. Now, I didn't want to make that decision. That wasn't a happy decision. It's a very small thing. It's a ridiculous thing to even bring up. But it shows the fun of the mind, right? It shows the kind of thing that we have to do, the small changes that we have to make to, to, to saddle this mind and to calm it down and to make it aware with a single-minded clarity what the real situation is. We're going to dig at that here some more. So to do that, we've got to look into our life and see, okay, what are the things that keep this thing from growing, that keep this thing from building in me? How come, like, I'll have a great meditation and I'll feel wonderfully spiritual, but by the time it's time for the next meditation, I'm beat. You know, like I've been hung on a carpet beater for the afternoon. Why is that? What is going on in my life that I can't, that my, that my vessel, my, my pot has holes in it, that everything that goes in flows out? You know, one of the very valuable lessons that I got during my sannyas ceremonies at, at Bilramat is a lecture that the Swami gave to us. And he said, your responsibility as, as sannyasins is not to generate nectar for the world, because Thakur has already done that. If you think you're generating the nectar, that will cause ego. Name and fame will be yours and perhaps blah, 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 blah. But you're not going to have realization. He says, your job is simply to be pure so that there's no holes in your vessel. So that when Takor fills your hands with bliss, you can turn around to those around you and give it to them without wasting any, without losing any. And I thought about that. I thought that's a beautiful ideal. And that's a big secret for us to know that when you sit in your spiritual practice, when you get that bliss, when you touch that place inside in that meditation, that's not you generating bliss. That's not you generating a spiritual experience. That's mother giving you some, dumping some into your bowl. And if it doesn't last, that's your fault because it's going out through the holes of impurity, the holes of ego, the holes of lust, the holes of greed the holes of selfishness, and it gets burned up that way. You know, one of the things that Swami uh, told me one time, I had this cool dream, and I was telling him about this dream, and he said, you know, it was a very nice dream, but don't, don't go sharing it with just anybody. Keep that to yourself. And I said, oh, well, why is that? He says, see, when you have a, a special dream or a holy dream with some holy folks in it, he says that, that gives you a nice spiritual energy inside. You know, it, it gives you a certain current, and that current can become anything. That's pure, that's pure life energy. That's pure prana that's given to you in that kind of experience. And if you keep it inside, it can hold you in the heart space. It can hold you, you know, and protect you here so that you can dip into it to give to everybody else. He says, but if you express it, it will become something else. You can take that energy and you tell people because there's a certain pride in having had that dream. So you go and you share that information, and that pure energy then becomes crystallized into ego. It becomes something you didn't want it to become. So you've taken a blessing and turned it into, and turned it into something that's an obstacle, that's something that's against you. you know, so you have to consider all of these things in this soil that you've got going on in your heart. What are you doing with these, with these trinkets? What are you doing with these seeds, with these inspirations, with these, these, this nectar that Mother's giving you? Are you renouncing accordingly? Are you making decisions in your life that are actually changing your life in small ways from day to day? 
You know, a lot of times in the scriptures, they highlight the person who just threw their towel on their shoulder and walked off into the mountains to renounce. But for most of us, renouncing is a matter of constant discrimination, constant looking inward, and a constant series of decisions that seem small, like I'm going to get up at 4.45 every morning. Big deal. Who cares about that? But it certainly set a lot of other things free. I'm friends with Swami A. (laughs) So like that. You make little decisions and you keep moving forward, but it's that kind of discrimination, that constant clearing that you have to do, pulling those rocks out of the soil so that those seeds can take root, having, affording that inner integrity, that inner authenticity that allows surface ideas to put roots down and manage the way that you act in the rest of your life. So some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed falls among the thorns, which grow up and choked the plants. So there's another one. What kind of environment do you have for your spiritual life when you're not in the temple? Do you have a place that's filled with weeds? You know, (laughs) what are those weeds? I don't know. I don't want to become a fundamentalist minister at this point in my life. I tried that once. But the idea, the idea, these things that you keep in your life that are going to distract you. You know, I got rid of my television in 1994, a long time before I joined the monastery, a long time before I was, had any spiritual inclination at all in my life. Because I could see I was going, I used to go to this, <laughs> this is recorded. Anyway, I'll tell you, I used to go to this, I used to go to this bar. I used to go to this bar every night, every, every night. Okay, now we're there. And uh, I would find, I had all my friends there, and I, I would find that all we would talk about was what happened on Designing Women and, you know, what was going on on Friends and what had happened on the soap operas or what, what we'd heard on the news. And one night I just had this, like, moment where I kind of became objective for a second, and I thought, wow, these are my friends, and I only talk about fake things with them. I only talk about what's on TV and what I heard on the news and what I read in the paper. Nobody, none of us are talking about our life. None of us are talking about things that we experience in a day. That's what it's like to have a life that's choked with weeds, you know, where you've got so many forms of entertainment going on that that's all you talk about. That's the only thing that's important, you know. My friend Bill calls me almost every, or we talk to each other every day. I'll split it down the middle. I call him too. But uh, we talk almost every day, and, you know, the, the first part of that conversation is always, you know, oh, well, you know, I did this and we did this and then we did this and now I'm doing this. But he'll always bring it back home. He says, yeah, but how are you today? And, and, and he really wants to know. And so then I have to dig deeper, you know, and think, well, I'm feeling a little down or I'm feeling a little challenged or actually I'm really happy today or whatever. But I don't do that unless he unless he comes to that place. You know, my mind is perfectly happy to flitter around you know, like a lightning bug, (laughs) talking about the surface things. Those are the weeds that choke us out. Those are the weeds that keep us asleep, that keep us from digging deep in our life, from being engaged in our lives, from engaging in a meaningful way with one another. So watch what you talk about with each other. Are they things that are helping you prepare and helping you become richer as a person and deeper as a person? Are Are you willing to listen to the person when you ask them, how are you doing? Or was that just a surface thing? Did you kind of want that one just to fall off? You want them just to say fine and move on? That's fine in the, in the world in general. I'm not saying we can't all go around being, you know, 
at least three things come through my mind I can't say aloud. You can't go around being, you know, this uh, shallow, you know, seemingly deeply concerned person that's going to demand, you know, a, a, a therapist's response on the, with, from the person sitting next to you on the bus. That's not what I'm talking about. But here with each other, here most of us know each other. We've seen each other how many times? We know that we're going to probably see each other quite a few more times from here on in. What are we doing with those relationships? You know, what am I doing with those relationships? Mother always brings it back to me, and it's always a problem when she does that because, <laughs> because there's a lot of work to be done. So I ask you, how do you talk to each other? What do you talk about with each other? Do you talk about things that are distracting your mind and keeping you asleep and keeping you unaware of the asteroids that could slam into the planet at any moment? You know, or are you, or are you talking about them, learning about them, making right decisions to find your inner peace in a world that can't offer any? That's the challenge. And the last seed, of course, falls on the ground and finds a, 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 a good soil where it produces a crop 160, 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. You know, Jesus, Jesus ends many of his parables with that. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. I always thought that was a funny thing when I was a kid. And as I grew up, I began to wonder, why does he always say that? Because he's not talking about these ears, is he? He's talking about your reflective ears inside that, that hear a spiritual truth and then go looking for a way to use it. You know, you read a spiritual truth like this, like this little parable here. And what do you do with it? You either just keep reading and think, oh, now I know the parable of the sower. Yeah, that's easy. I get the types of soil. Or you can take that parable and use it like a flashlight and go hunting. Like that reference in the poem we read. To go hunting for that invisible uh, pray, you know, or pray, I guess, I don't know, to go looking. What does it mean? How do I use this right now? How can I take this, this piece of scripture, close my eyes and take this flashlight and go hunting? Like, okay. All right. There's a thought. How does it look in this light? If I shine this flashlight on it, how does it come out? That's how we get insight. That's how we understand. That's how we develop ears to hear so that when a teacher, when a, when a great soul says something to us, it has an effect right? I mentioned before, I think it's the Viveka Chudamani. It's either that one or Vedantasara. For some reason, I can't keep those books separate in my head. But uh, I remember when I first read that book, and it gives the qualities of the, the perfect student. You know, I've mentioned this before. It's like you read that, and what, what can you do? <laughs> I went to Swami. I told him, I said, I should just go. I should just leave. And uh, I was serious. I said, I said, I really, I should just go. And he said, oh, what, what is this? What is this? I said, Maharaj, look at this list of requirements for being a perfect student. I mean, I can't even get the first three letters of the first sentence out of my mouth and, and still feel like I should sit here. You know, it's like, what, what, what can I do with that? And he says, no, see, that's the ideal. And I said, well, of course that's the ideal. I said, but I'm not. I'm nowhere near that. And if that's what it takes to be a student, he says, no, see, that's the perfect student. With that student, all the teacher has to do is come up behind them and whisper in their ear, thou art that. And they will have ears to hear. They will understand. And boom, they're free. That's the perfect student. They've done all the yamas and the niyamas. They've done all the self-control bits they've done their stillness of mind you know they've, they're holding themselves together and they're sitting there the vessels wide open and the teacher says thou art that 
and they have ears to hear, so they hear and they're free. So when Jesus gives a lecture, whenever he gives this little parable, he always ends it, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That means if you are doing, taking care of the soil of the heart, it means if you're in there attending these things and doing that introspection and making the changes and coupling your renunciation with your devotion, that when he says that to you, when you read any truth in the scriptures, it hits home. It makes a change. It's like, wow, cool. <laughs> and you're different because of it. So that's where we're going. Now, like I said, we've got at least two lectures here. Uh, because, uh, because Mother wouldn't let go of that scripture. So there it is. Now, coming back to our asteroids. We're going to a conversation that's happening in Dakshineshwar with Hari and the Master. Hari says, why is there so much suffering in the world? And the Master says, this world is the Leela of God. It's like a game. In this game, there are joy and sorrow, virtue and vice, knowledge and ignorance, good and evil. The game cannot continue if sin and suffering are altogether eliminated from the creation. You know. Then he goes on, and Hari says, yeah, but this play is our death. We're going to die. You know, We're the ones that are having to play with all these coins of happiness and sadness and all these back and forth and back and forth. And the master smiles broadly, and I can just see his eyes just glistening there, just this inner mischievousness of knowing the truth and understanding all of the twists that's putting Hari in the place that Hari's sitting and looking. And the master, with that kind of divine madness, that playfulness, that, that knowing, looks with that twinkle you know, <laughs> at Hari, and he says, please tell me who you are. Knowing full well who Hari was, you know, knowing full well that Hari was the maker of the game, that Hari was in his, true, in his true nature the one who designed all of this game. And now Hari has lost himself in the game and forgets that he's the maker of the game and forgets that he's the designer of this grand joke. And he gets lost in it and begins to take himself personally, <laughs> begins to take his, his shortcomings seriously, his limitations and his restrictions as himself. And he's lost and he's whirling. He's going to sleep. God alone has become all of this. Maya, the universe, living beings, the 24 cosmic principles. As the snake I bite and as the charmer I cure. It is God himself who has become both Vidya and Avidya. He remains deluded by Maya, Avidya, ignorance. Again, with the help of the guru, he is cured by the Maya, of Vidya, knowledge. So we've got the situation, what has put us asleep? Putting us asleep has, has been a process, a long process for us. Started from the first day out of the womb. We started looking at the world. You know, you look in that baby's eyes at first, there's no attachments there. There's just openness, just openness. And then he learns that his toes are there, you know, after about seven months, which I think is a cool thing. It takes you seven months to realize that those toes are your toes. And that's the biggest mistake you ever made. <laughs> was identifying with them. These are my toes and not yours. And uh, from there on, it just keeps spinning and keeps spinning and keeps spinning. So the master's saying here, ah, yes, this world is very painful if you forget the answer to this question. Please tell me who you are. So the next time, how do you use that? How do you use that? This little story is a scripture. The next time you're lost in the day, the next time you're stressed out, Next time you're angry, next time you just can't take it, the boss says the wrong thing for the fourth time in a row. What do you do? 
You turn inwardly and you look at the master's eyes, smiling, half-jokingly, half-mad, because he knows the reality within you. And remember, please tell me who you are. And ask yourself, use that flashlight in that moment. That's how you take the scriptures and make them real. That's how you become an authentic spiritual seeker and not just a religious person, is by being able to take that and turn it inward and see a change. So you take this little simple scripture, take it to work with you tomorrow, take it home to lunch today, and when things just get too much, when the world seems too convincing, when you read one more thing that politicians have done that you just simply can't believe, stop and see the master's eyes, playful, half mad in wisdom, laughing because he knows the truth as he comes close to you and says, please tell me who you are. And see that madness in his eyes and enjoy. Laugh at the pain. This is part of the game. This is part of the fun. And when you realize you created it, you've made this game. This is your design. And you're very clever. So you had to make this game very convincing. You had to make it seem very real. Because you knew otherwise you'd lose interest and you'd be finished in a second. You'd be done. So another questioner says, I don't like this Leela, this play idea. I would rather compare the world to a workyard in which we are the builders. M, you take it too seriously. What's wrong with the play? You have a purpose only as long as you are not complete. Till then, completeness, perfection, is the purpose. But when you are complete in yourself, when you're fully integrated within and without, then you enjoy the universe. You do not labor at it. To the disintegrated, you may seem like you are working hard, but that is their illusion. Sportsmen seem to make tremendous efforts, and yet their sole motive is to play and display. Do you mean to say that God is just having fun, that he's engaged in purposeless action? Maharaj, this is Sri Nishagadatta. God not only is true and good, he is also beautiful, satyam shivam sundaram. He creates beauty for the joy of it. Well, then beauty is his purpose. Why do you introduce purpose? Purpose implies movement, change, a sense of imperfection. God does not aim at beauty. Whatever he does is beautiful. Would you say that a flower is trying to be beautiful? It is beautiful by its very nature. Similarly, God is perfection itself, not an effort at perfection. We have to remember Sri Nishrigadatta was, was, you know, an illumined soul. He saw very clearly in things. But he saw truthfully, you know, that this world, we wonder what is the point? What is, what is, what is, where is this all going? You know, are we supposed to, are we here as students? Are we here, how, how is this playing its part? And Sri Nishrigadatta says, this just is God. This world is just emanating love. This world is the body heat of God, as it were. You know, you don't have to sit there and generate body heat. It just comes because you're alive, because you're going on. This world just is. Nothing, God isn't trying to accomplish anything. There's nothing to be done. He's not trying to work out any problems. When he is, this is. That's all, the whiteness of milk, the the heat of the flame. When God is, this is. And we see it, and we see such a, in such a limited way, because, you know, like we keep talking about this limited body that we look through. We see it in that limited way, these small pieces. 
and we don't understand. We don't get, and, and it looks like we need a purpose. We've got to grow because we don't have the whole puzzle. You know, we don't have full information. We don't have infinite security. We don't have infinite compassion. So we keep going and trying to work it all out. He's saying, stop. Go inside. Realize that there's nothing here. This world is beautiful by default. If you, if you can do away with this ego, with this mistake of thinking that you are this small thing, then what you do is beautiful by its nature. Not something you have to try and do. It's beautiful by its nature. So clear it out. Swami Vivekananda was having a conversation with Miss Bell. She says, this world's an old schoolhouse where we come to learn our lessons. Swami Vivekananda, who told you that? Miss Bell could not remember. Well, I don't think so, said Vivekananda. I think this world is a circus ring in which we are the clowns tumbling. Miss Bell, why do we tumble, Swami? Swami Vivekananda, because we like to tumble. When we get tired, we'll quit. That's the thing. When we get tired, we'll quit. When Mother, you know, Ramakrishna says that, he says, as long as you're happy playing with your toys, as long as the things, the things that you ask for, you know, your new stereo, your new Bluetooth speakers, whatever, as long as these things are keeping you entertained, Mother's just going to let you be entertained with them, you know, while she's doing whatever she does. <laughs> she's just going to keep you happy with the trinkets in your life. So what you have to do is either just be content with the trinkets or you have to start making more noise, start calling out. You know, Takor says when the baby starts crying, the mother comes running from the other room to take care. So if you can get your eyes off of the toys, you know, get your eyes off of the make-believe purposes and intrigues that you've gotten yourself tied into, you can get yourself to release from the imaginary goals and achievements that you have to attain or work hard on or capture. If you can let go of those things for a moment and call out, say, I've had enough, my play is done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm really done, I've looked at this, you know. We are talking about that on Friday night class, you know, this body. How many times are you going to wash it? <laughs> How many times do you get it to bed? How many times do you feed it? And we just keep doing it. We, okay, fine. But I mean, calculate how many times you've, you've put food into this mouth in this lifetime so far. I mean, at least three times a day for how many days? It's good God. How is it that I'm not tired of doing that? How is it that I'm not just walking by the counter and grabbing anything, just going, get that over with and move on? How is it that I'm continually intriguing myself with this? Oh, look at that menu. <laughs> oh, Today it's going to be burritos, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like for the nine millionth time, and yet I'm happy as can be. Ooh, burritos. So this idea, you've got to start some introspection. You've got to start going inward. You've got to start looking at the nature of you as a, as a garden for these truths. Find these things that are distracting you. Stop going blindly forward and just accepting the day after day after day because it just falls your way. Take charge. Take charge. Become aware. Think about those asteroids. You know, think about the, the lunacy of this experience. Think about that. That's what I, that's, actually, I love to do that. Just sit there. You don't, you don't need scriptures for it. You don't need anything but a, you don't need, you don't need anything but a place to sit down and to just start wondering. Ask yourself this question. What is one thing that you know that's not related to anything else?
Start with that question. Or sit there in the shrine and say, where am I? Am I in the body or am I just looking through it? You know, touch your head and say, am I above my hand or below my hand? Am I in front of my hand or behind my hand? Do these little experiments, things to wake yourself up, to ask questions that you haven't asked before. Sit there, taste something. Like the other day I was drinking eggnog. Ugh. I love that stuff. (laughs) And I tell you that it is the perfect example of Maya because I love it so much that I'm not even satisfied when it's on my tongue, moving from the front to the back. That period of time is not long enough. It's only frustrating to me because that flavor is gone so fast, so quickly. You know, I mean, that's how much I love that stuff, and that's how dissatisfying it is. That's the nature of this world. If you wake up to it, if you think about it, you understand that, God, I'm, it makes it a lot easier to put it down because you're like, oh, I've tried it. I can't get enough of it. There's no way I can possibly be happy with that. You know, it's not going to do it. But I went another direction with that the other day. I was sitting there. I was putting it on my tongue, and I was just kind of letting it sit there and enjoying it. And I was trying to think of it. <laughs> I was sitting there trying to understand, what is this? Like, what, what is the name? I mean, it's a flavor, okay, but what is a flavor? What, what's happening here that is causing me so much desire and so much pleasure? Like, what is this? And I couldn't answer that question. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I mean, what is a flavor? What's, why is this chemical on my tongue having this reaction? And why is there any tie-in on my part at all? It's like, how many different chemical reactions do you have with things that you eat? Why only some of them are capturing you? What is it? You know, these simple things. Why would, why would you need to do it? Why am I saying that you need to think about things like that? I'm not really saying you need to do that. What I'm saying is you need to become aware and start investigating. Start poking. Because you don't know the first thing about this world that you live in. You don't know the first thing about this body that you're inhabiting that you're following around through this life. You don't know the first two inches of your own mind. Get curious. Begin wondering. Begin asking, why this? Why that? And take it into the shrine with you, into that quiet space of peace, and ask that ideal within. Ask that ideal within. What is the nature of these things? Show me the nature of this so that I can learn and understand. What is eggnog? <laughs> take it. Take it to that level. Let everything in your day, your simple things, the small things, let them be something that pokes at you and makes you ask a question, makes you wonder, makes you look inside to see what is the nature of things? What is the purpose of my life? What do I think the purpose of my life is? What's causing my madness? Why am I, why am I content to do the same day over and over and over and over again with just a, a weekend blip at the end. Why, why is that all right? Ask these questions and go with them. Maharaj says, I said to Kishori, this box is empty, there's nothing inside, but two men pull at it from either side, thinking the box contains money. Well, the body alone is the cause of all this mischief, isn't it? The Ghanis see all this and say to themselves, what a relief one feels when this pillowcase of the body drops off. 
That's what this world is. It's an empty box, everybody pulling at it, trying to get what's inside. There's nothing inside. How many times do the scriptures have to tell you that? There's nothing here that's going to make you happy. You're never going to get a big enough paycheck. Your raise is never going to be enough for you. You're never going to love your wife enough. You're never going to have enough bliss from whatever, whatever it is you're looking for. There's not enough eggnog in the world to keep you happy. <laughs> Even if I walked around with a bottle of it, just constantly sipping. <laughs> There's not enough. Take that to heart. Listen to that and stop it. Right? Stop it. The sign of insanity is when you do the same thing over and over and over again, knowing that it's going to give you the same fruit each time. And it's not enough. No man becomes purer and purer. It's a matter of greater manifestation. Tear the veil away, and the native purity of the soul begins to manifest itself. Everything is ours already. Infinite purity, infinite freedom, infinite love, and infinite power. It is the man who does not believe in himself that is an atheist. Take things like that. Take that scripture as a light inside. I already have everything. Do that meditation. Sit in your shrine this afternoon and say, okay, I have everything. Everything that I need for my enlightenment is here. Why am I not enlightened? Everything I need is present. I'm already that. Everything is here. What is it, O oh mind, that won't let me see? And go hunting. Go hunting for these invisible trinkets, these invisible truths that are within you. Find them. But you've got to wake up to know that they exist. You've got to wake up enough to get curious to go looking for them. That you're, If you've reduced your practice to, to just doing a japa a certain number of times a day, if that's your practice, what is that? Your practice is an investigation. An investigation in, into the most insane truth. <laughs> so insane that you can hardly believe it could possibly be true. And yet here we are. That's a statement that, we're sort of, that we sort of believe it's true or that we sort of suspect that it's true. If you're here for another reason, I'd like to hear it, actually. I'd be curious. But uh, to take these things, to imbibe them, to let them affect you, let yourself be affected. Open up that heart, open up that mind, and stop. We have to maintain this, this positive approach this, to keep working. The master and M went toward the Kali temple. They were talking about the futility of the world being unreal. The master, why should you say such things? This world may be a framework of illusion, but it is also said that it's a mansion of mirth. Let the body remain. One can also turn this world into a mansion of mirth. M, but where is the unbroken bliss in this world? The master, again with that... I just know that wicked, that, that wicked mischievous smile <laughs> turns to him and he says, yes, where is it? <laughs> where is it? So M's going on, complaining, if this world has no meaning, if there's nothing there, what's the point of it? Where is the unbroken bliss that's in this world? And the master who's standing in the middle of that ocean of bliss, who's standing there just inundated, can't even keep his body conscious because it's being overwhelmed with that constant source of bliss, looks at him with that knowing smile, looks at him with that, with that lunacy of, of, of enlightenment, it just playfully says to him, yes, where is that? 
<laughs> Where is that bliss? You should go look for it. You should go look for it because you have everything within you. Wake up. You have just been told that you have an unbroken source of bliss within you by the master of the universe. Go look for it. Don't be a fool for another day. Get curious. Wake up that inner spirit. Listen to your teacher when he says something to you so that you become closer to that perfect student so that one day when you sit down in that meditation, finally, the master comes up behind you and your ear says, thou art that, and you know the truth because you've prepared the soil in your heart. You've paired your devotion with your renunciation. You've cleaned up the rocks from your garden so that the plants can take root. And you grow, and you go from a lower truth to a higher truth, and you begin to see the truth of what these things, these, these little bits and pieces that the Master has given to you. M, since there is no unbroken happiness in the world, why should one assume a body at all? I know that the body is meant only to reap the results of past action, but who knows what sort of action it is performing now? The unfortunate part is that we are being crushed. The master, if a pea falls into filth, it grows into a pea plant nonetheless. M, but still there are the eight bonds. He's determined. <laughs> the master, they're not the eight bonds, the eight fetters. But what if they are? These fetters fall off in a moment by the grace of God. Do you know what it is like? Suppose a room has been kept dark a thousand years. The moment a man brings a light into it, the darkness vanishes. Not little by little. Haven't you seen the magician's feet? He takes a string with many knots and ties one end to something, keeping the other in his hand, and then he shakes the string once or twice, and immediately all the knots are undone. Vivekananda adds, totally different situation, but he comes in and says, it is our own mental attitude that makes the world what it is for us. Our thoughts make things beautiful, our thoughts make things ugly. The whole world is in our own mind. Learn to see things in the proper light. First, believe in this world that there is meaning behind everything. Everything in the world is good. Everything in the world is holy. Everything in the world is beautiful. If you see something evil, think that you are not understanding it in the right light. Throw the burden on yourselves. Whenever we are tempted to say the world is going to the dogs, we ought to analyze ourselves, and we shall find that we have lost the faculty of seeing things as they are. That's the final thought. This world, in all of its machinations, this world, in all of its mystery, is exactly what you make it to be. There's no meaning out there in that sense. Things out there, we've talked about it an infinite number of times. Well, probably not. But they're not positive or negative. The world isn't good or bad. The world isn't right or wrong. The world is a manifestation of love, constantly emanating off of the body of the divine who's in and through everything. When we suffer, it's an indication to look deeper, to ask, what am I holding on to? What is not part of my nature? What am I grabbing onto? What am I not seeing properly? When we get down into depression, it's time to sit down and say, what am I not seeing properly? How is it that the master could inhabit the same world that I'm inhabiting and have a constant stream of bliss within? And why does he teasingly now look in my eye and say, yes, where is it? Where is it? And look within. 
and drink of that well. Become children of immortal bliss, as Vivekananda invited us. And says, you are those children of immortal bliss. Let's have more immortal bliss in our faces, more immortal bliss in our relationships with one another, more immortal bliss in our hope about the world around us and the way we view things. This world is a mansion of mirth for those who see it as their divine lover. Rumi has a nice poem. Inside this new love, die. Your way begins on the other side. Become the sky. Take an axe to the prison wall. Escape. Walk out like someone suddenly born into color. Do it now. You're covered with a thick cloud. Slide out the side. Die. And be quiet. Quietness is the surest sign that you've died. Your old life was a frantic running from silence. The speechless full moon comes out now. Let's take a few minutes to think about these things. There's a great movie, <laughs> and if you won't hold it against me, I'll recommend it to you, but if you don't like it, I just ignore it, called Harold and Maude. I don't know if you've seen it. It's an old cult classic, and uh, it's just fantastic because really Maude is this old woman, and she represents the ideal to the filmmaker. She's completely unattached from the world. She needs nothing. She She's an artist, and you know, very bohemian. So everything is very rich and alive for her always. And uh, this young man, Harold, he's, he's a teenager. He falls in love with her. She's an old woman. She's probably 70-something. And uh, he falls in love with her. And so he wants her to marry him at one point in the movie. So they're walking behind, by this big lake in the evening, very romantic. And this 70-year-old woman's with this, <laughs> this teenage boy. And he pulls out this engagement ring. And he's, he's from a very wealthy family, so it's a real rock. I mean, it's a real ring. And he's like, he turns to Maude and he's like, here, Maude, I want you to have this. 
And she's surprised. Oh, what is this? It's beautiful. And he says, oh, Maud, I want you to marry me. And she, of course, is like, oh, don't be silly. And she takes the ring and she hurls it into the lake <laughs> next to her. And, uh, you know, she's smiling happily the whole time. And, and uh, Harold looks and says, Maud, why did you do that? And she looks at him and she's, she's over her head. And she says, that way I'll always know just where it is. <laughs> So this is the idea. Don't be attached. So we've got several things coming on this week. First, before I forget, there's a sign-up sheet out there for more help for cleanup, for vegetable cutting, for food and whatnot for Kapataro Day, which is January 1st. Okay, we have another program coming up on the 18th, Holy Mother's Worship at 11 a.m., but somebody is going to bring all the food for that, so we don't need anybody to do the cooking uh, for that. So that's coming up on the 18th. Uh, there'll be a, a worship, a flower offering, and then a nice big lunch together. Uh, there's going to be a big Christmas Eve dinner on the 24th. Carols, oh, just refreshments, not dinner. 7.30 Christmas carols and readings and refreshments. Uh, this week's, we'll, we'll do our standard week. Swami A will be back uh, either tomorrow or Tuesday morning. But he'll be here for the class on, on Tuesday and for the Wednesday night on Viveka Chudamani. And uh, then this coming uh, week on the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna on Friday night. So those are going on. The temple's opened every day from 5 a.m. <laughs> until uh, oh, roughly 10 p.m. So come by anytime. One of the greatest contributions you can make to, for, to your brothers and sisters here is to come spend time in the temple uh, and just leave that holy vibration behind. Uh, I don't know anything about those things, but... Uh, People holier than me say that they have an effect, that if you come and meditate in a place, you leave something there, that you leave a stillness that other people can feel and share in. So please come. That's one of the greatest things you can give to this center is your practice. Uh, so come here, read in the library or the bookshop. You can take any of those books and read them there at the tables. Come in here, do some meditation, sit in the living room and ask somebody a question or share a poem or something like that. By doing that, we go from a lower truth to a higher truth, and we turn this world into its mansion of mirth that we're looking for by seeing it inside first. <laughs>